This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration pulled U.S. troops and pretty much everything else out of Afghanistan months ago. But the work of the Special Inspector for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, goes on. There's humanitarian aid flowing into Afghanistan and still lots of things to account for. We get an update from the special IG himself, John Sopko. Mr. Sopko, good to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here again, Tom. Always a pleasure. And during this pullout, of course, knowing the work that you do, our first thought here was, what's going on with SIGAR? But you would think that logically... You'd say, well, who needs this anymore? Let's let's end this whole thing. But not the case at all, is it? Well, we're smaller than we were before, but uh, there still is a lot of money going in. And we still are wrapping up a lot of audits where we can capture money if it's been wasted. So uh, uh, we're still working pretty hard. And we got a new request from a number of congressional committees and members to look at actually the collapse and what has happened in Afghanistan since the collapse. I pity you having that assignment because no matter what you say, it's going to be divisive, even though I know you're, you're not a policy type of shop. So what is left to do? What, what are you looking at at this point? What are the projects ongoing? We have a number of audits that we were doing up to the end, which was in last August. Those are uh, finishing. Uh, we have a number of financial audits where we can still identify money that's outstanding. But uh, the important thing is Congress has come back and asked us to answer some big questions. Number one, why did the Afghan government collapse so suddenly? I mean, within months. And we have a a big team on that. We've interviewed 100 some people on that. Second question is, why did the Afghan military collapse so suddenly? And we gave them close to $80 billion. And Congress wants to know what went wrong. They also want to know what happened to all the weapons. And where are they now? And where are they going to? Are the Taliban selling them to other people, to terrorist groups? They want to know what happened to the money, because we were pumping money in there up to the very end. So where did that money go? And was any of it stolen by the Taliban or by some nefarious uh, former government officials? They also want to know what happened to all of the Afghans who believed in us, the teachers, the women, the professors, the journalists, just like yourself. We had a nascent, uh, Afghanistan had a nascent journalists uh, and and newspapers and TVs. What happened to all of those people? So those are some of the questions we're working on right now. At the same time, we're being asked by aid and by the UN, the World Bank and other NGOs as to how do we do humanitarian aid? So we're we're still here looking at the humanitarian aid, and we're we've got about seven hundred million dollars going over in humanitarian aid. The UN is saying they need six billion dollars, and we of course pay twenty percent of what the UN spends. That's how much money we spend to the UN. Plus, as you notice, just last week President Biden signed an executive order where potentially another three point five billion dollars. And that's of assets that the Afghans had in our central bank here. Um, that's going to be going to Afghanistan. The only caveat on it is that it can't go to the Taliban. So that's a tricky thing. How do you send money to the Afghan people without the Taliban grabbing it? So that's yeah. something we're working on. So lots of questions in that first initial list that are kind of new to the list. How do you go about finding out that information? You can't send people over there and wander around and knock on doors and check in with people. I mean, it's a place Americans really can't go at this point. Well, yes, you're absolutely correct. And and that's it's difficult. 
that's why uh, we, I, uh, we issued our quarterly report, and I've spoken about this publicly. This is extremely difficult time to do oversight uh, and to try to protect the money. We think we're the best uh, government agency to do that because we had the largest uh, oversight uh, presence in Afghanistan. We've also been doing this for 10 years or more. Uh, I've been doing it for 10 years or more. We've been around for 13 years. So we can use our network of uh, sources. We can use our experts, and we can also try to follow the money. A lot of these cases that we've made in the past are basically paper cases. We're following the money from the U.S. or other donors to Afghanistan. But it's going to be extremely difficult. And that's the warning we are sending to the World Bank, to the U.N., to Congress, to the administration. Do oversight. Don't forget oversight. I was a bit shocked yesterday. A very good presentation by a senior State Department official about Afghanistan went on for an hour and a half at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And not one word, not one word was said how we are going to protect the billions of dollars we're sending over to Afghanistan. We're speaking with John Sopko. He's Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And with respect to the audit work that you have done for these past several years now, in many ways it's all in vain because all the money we spent there is sunk and we can't get it back. And now the government and the military have collapsed. But at the same time, do you think that what you learned in that oversight and the recommendations you made are still valid in the general sense for when the United States is involved in another nation in some manner? Oh, absolutely. You're, you're right on point, Tom. The, uh, the lessons we have identified and hopefully our administration has learned are useful not only in Afghanistan, but any other place around the world where we're doing a development aid, where we're trying to support and build a military, and there is an ongoing war. And I think if you read our uh, lessons learned reports and our reports, you'll, you'll, you'll agree with that. They're very useful. And we've been told that by aid officials, by development officials around the world. I mean, we get calls from the French, the Germans, the Brits on... Uh, assistance they're doing. They want to learn lessons from us. So uh, I think they're very useful. And with respect to the oversight, you have issued some kind of anticipatory principles for those that are giving humanitarian aid even before the money flows. Maybe review those for us briefly. Yeah, very briefly. And, and this is based upon our 13 years of experience. We've issued over 700 reports, and I think we have some of the brightest auditors and analysts and investigators in the world. So what we've said is these are, we've sort of culled through all of our recommendations. And these are sort of 10 things you have to keep in mind. First one is, and a lot of them sound real simple, but it's amazing how few of these things were actually carried out over the last 10, 15 years. First thing is establish a clear purpose for your assistance. I mean, state it directly. What are we going to accomplish? Because all programs then follow that. You know, you probably talked to a lot of, of uh, military officers or aid officials who came back from Afghanistan saying, what was I doing there? I don't even know why I was there. Well, that's a problem. So face <laughs> that. Secondly, you know, we got to have full transparency. We have to know where our money is going. So that means if we send money to UN, World Bank, Asian Development Bank, uh, any other trust fund, we have to be able to follow that money. 
And in the past, the World Bank and the UN and other organizations have not been giving us or other oversight agencies access. We have to really come up with a tolerable level of risk. We have to be honest with the American people. We are going to lose some money. What we hope is we don't lose as much as we did over the last 10 years, and that's why we have this, these principles. you you got to monitor. You have to have monitoring and evaluation in place, and then you have to monitor the monitors because we're not going to have Americans out there in Afghanistan. We're going to have to use third parties. So those are some of the issues. I mean, the other key issue is let's use smart conditionality. You know, we're going to be sending, or the executive order potentially says we're sending $3.5 billion to Afghanistan. Uh, the State Department isn't clear in telling us where that money's actually going to go, nor have they said, how is it going to be spent? But obviously, we can condition that $3.5 billion on something we want to see the Taliban do. Sure. Whether it's dealing with women, girls, human rights issues, a free and open press, you know, smart conditionality, not like we did in the past. And we've been very critical. We came up with 600 or 800 some conditions for the Afghan government in the past. They couldn't do them. Yeah, almost uh, like so, a, a contractor deal or something you would put in oh, requirements. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, if you issue a condition, follow through if the Afghans, or in this case, the Taliban, don't live up to it. That was the other thing that the prior government knew. We never had the guts to actually pull the money back for not meeting the conditions. So those are some of the issues. They're all available, all of them in a long uh, discussion of each one of them, why they're important, on our website, if anybody wants to see them in more detail. And we'll link that when we post this interview as well. We're speaking with John Sopko. He's Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. With respect to the uh, oversight Principles, you mentioned that the need for people to watch the watchers, so to speak. Are there proxy agents that may not be Afghanistan, certainly are not American or I guess British or something like that, in Afghanistan that can be reliably used as sort of honest brokers between the Taliban and the United States? In the past, there were. And we worked with some civil society organizations that we trained and they were set up and did an excellent job. We're going to have to try to do that again. And you can do it. But again, you're hitting a good point, Tom. Who is going to go into Afghanistan right now? And can we trust those people? So you have to set up a system for monitoring the monitors. And I haven't heard anybody in the government talking about that. Now, our, our 10 principles, we talk about that. And we also highlight some of the good things that USAID did in setting up a monitoring system. We also highlight some of the good things the UN has done in other foreign countries. So it can be done. What we're saying is pause, think before you throw billions of dollars. Uh, because there's one thing, Tom, I think I've been on the show before and I've said, you know, I, I'm not good at predicting the future and nobody is in Afghanistan. But one thing I can tell you with almost 100% certainty, is if we don't have oversight built in, baked into the money going to Afghanistan now, I can tell you we're going to lose a great percentage, if not all of that money. Could it be a potential policy to say, okay, some of this money is going to go to the Taliban for its administrative needs, as long as, say, 80 percent of it goes to feed people, if that's the object of it? And that may not be ideal in a perfect world, but if you can sort of buy them off and ensure that the rest of the money feeds people, 
Is that the kind of trade-off you think might be have to take place or is doable? That's a policy decision. And I, I you know, I take no role. IGs don't do policy. Sure. We do process. So if that's a policy decision. I, I'll tell you right now, the policy of the United States government, and I think most Western governments, is that we're not sending any money to, to the Taliban. Uh, now, you may not be sending the money directly to the Taliban, but the money is helping Afghans. That's what we want to do, help the Afghan citizens. And so indirectly, you know, you're helping the Taliban. Uh, even if they don't touch a dime, you're helping the people who are in uh, Taliban-controlled country. Sure. But I, I, I really think up to now, I've not heard of anyone uh, in the U.S. government uh, or Congress saying that we should send money directly to the Taliban, even if it's a percentage. Sure. Uh, it's just hard to imagine how the money can go over their heads directly into Afghanistan normal hands and not some of it maybe even just through extortion or shakedowns. Oh, you're, you're absolutely correct. And that's the experience. And I think we should learn from the experience. Even the U.N. faced that. But they tried to set up a system, let's say, in the Sudan. And then later, we, we I think we did it in Syria and Yemen and all of that a number of those countries where, you know, again, this goes back to what's your purpose? Where's the money going to go? What's your level of risk or loss of money? And, uh, you know, how do you set up a monitoring system? And the other thing is, and, and this is what I think is really good uh, in, in systems we've looked at, where you have somebody on the ground working for the UN or working for USAID or whatever saying, hey, the money in this province or this district is supposed to go to these poor people, these people who are starving. It's not. And I'm sorry, whoever you are, Houthis or whatever the armed group was, we're going to just stop because it's being diverted to your soldiers or it's being diverted to somebody's bank account uh, in Europe or uh, someplace else. So, But you got to have the guts to say no. That's the only thing these groups really understand. So I think uh, that's the important thing. And it's it, it's not easy. And that's what we're warning it, warning our government. If you don't do something, all of that money. I mean, you know, we're sending over right now, uh, at least this is what's being reported to us, pallets of U.S. dollar bills. Now, I can understand that because there's no food around and that's a quick way to get money out. But when you talk about pallets of dollar bills, that's extremely risky. So what is the system in place to make certain that money doesn't go to a poor person who then is immediately forced to give it to some Taliban guy with an AK? Yeah. 47. Yep. OK. John Sopko, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, is my guest. Well, let's hope they're listening. And I just wanted to also explore with you the cigar human side of all of this. You had people in Afghanistan. I believe you visited there yourself over the course of the years of the cigar work. And there are, as you mentioned, many Afghanistanis who, Afghans who believe in the United States and who were friends. And so what's, what happened there? It seems like a harsh pullout from your standpoint. Well, we, we, we had the largest oversight presence in Afghanistan for the 10 years that I was there and right up to the end. Fortunately for my staff, uh, because of COVID, there was a drawdown starting a year or more before to all U.S. staff. So we had a small group of uh, uh, investigators and auditors there. Uh, we got them out and we had a small contingency contingent of uh, 
Afghan employees, and we were able to get them out. But it took a long time. And uh, the stories they told us, uh, the Afghans did, uh, it, it was just horrifying. And we were over on this side, and then some were hiding places and getting to the airport. It was horrendous. And I'm certain there's far more stories like that. But we also sponsored or helped, oh, I think, close to 600-some Afghans. And some of them are still there. And many, we don't know what happened to I mean, dealing with the State Department, unfortunately, I have to admit, is dealing with a black hole. We don't know. And I think anyone you talk to who has worked with trying to get Afghans out will say that. I mean, you know, you you submit the paperwork. The Afghans submitted the paperwork. There was no response. It was crickets. And uh, and that's the the sad thing. And, And we're talking to Afghans right now about what's going on in the country. And many Afghans are telling us that a lot of these people are still in hiding, uh, using burn phones because they don't want to be traced and they're going from place to place. So that's a concern. I think everybody still has. All right. So the future for Cigar then is you had a sunset date at some point in the future. What is it now? And we can wind up there. Well, the sunset is based upon the amount of money uh, going over there. And we haven't uh, hit that yet. But but we are in a, you know, declining staffing and budget, which is understandable. And at some point we are a temporary agency. And I always I think that's a good idea. I think we should have more temporary federal agencies. And so we will go out of existence. We'll wait and hear what uh, Congress says, um, when that'll be, and it'll be sometime uh, in, in the future, in the near future. Well, it's been quite an opus so far. John Sopko is Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Thanks so much for joining me. It is a pleasure. Always a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to his latest report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.